I'm just profoundly enthusiastic about joining all of you here today. I'm so grateful for this privilege and opportunity to look at transforming public education in the state of California. It was transformed last year for all the wrong reasons. We're now going to transform it in the next five years for all the right reasons. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And this week sponsors the Heising Simons Foundation and the Soprado Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. That was Governor Newsom talking about what can only be described as a once-in-a-generation budget with tens of billions of dollars in surplus revenue for state government and a lot of it going to K-12 education. In the May revision of his budget, which Newsom announced this week, he outlined how he would like to spend $20 billion on a range of ambitious education initiatives. The state legislature has to approve all of this, of course. Later in the podcast, we'll speak with Chris Edley, who has just been named Interim Dean of the Graduate School of Education at UC Berkeley. But first, John, let's take a closer look at the budget, which you were on top of, as you usually are. How did this happen that we ended up with this huge budget surplus? Where we are today was really unimaginable a year ago when the legislature passed the current budget, and that was in the early part of the pandemic. Newsom talks about the economy roaring back. Well, this certainly is true for education revenue because state revenues recovered far more quickly than anticipated. Well, John, this is just a one-time deal, right? I mean, the out years are still looking not so good. That's a challenge, Lewis, to stretch out these current revenues over several years. Well, give us some highlights, John. Well, here are some of the key elements. They include expanding community schools, hundreds of them, through community partnerships, wellness clinics, mental health services and counseling, parent liaisons, and all these features are part of community schools. He includes fully funding summer school and after school for all low-income children. There would be massive intensive tutoring in the schools starting this fall. And there'd be universal transitional kindergarten over the next four years for all four-year-olds. Now, that's a subject you've been following for years, Lewis. So what was your reaction? Well, this is a big deal. I mean, transitional kindergarten right now is a bit of an anomaly in the state. It's kind of a leftover from when the state changed the rules. It said you had to be five years old by September 1 to enroll in kindergarten. Beforehand, you could still be four until December and still enroll in kindergarten. So they set up this transitional kindergarten for four-year-olds just for kids who turned five between September and December. So now the governor is taking this and extending it for the whole year. There's been a debate for several years. Should we have expanded preschool for four-year-olds or this transitional kindergarten? And the governor now has put these bets on transitional kindergarten. And the key difference is these are programs run by school districts, and you have fully credentialed teachers with an undergraduate degree and a teaching credential teaching those classes, which is not the case in preschool. And, of course, much better paid. A lot of people think that that could really make a difference in improving the quality of what's available. Well, as you've said, it's been debated for years, but now, finally, there is the money to do it. So the governor plans to put up nearly $3 billion over several years to make it happen. Yeah, and of course, there's some big challenges there because 
uh, one of the other things the governor announced was that he wants to reduce the student-teacher ratio in transitional kindergarten from, from 24 students to one teacher to 12 students to one teacher. Also, that would be a tremendous advance, but where are all the teachers going to come from to fill those classrooms? Now, this will be phased in over the next several years. So uh, for those of you who have kids turning five in the fall, this does not mean that your kids will all be eligible to enroll, at least at this time. Another element that the governor is proposing is $2 billion to establish $500 college savings accounts for all low-income students entering first grade. Let's hear from the governor about this program, which he actually said he was the most excited about than anything else in his budget. We're poised to do something uh, that the academics have been promoting for decades And the researchers have said it's one of the best investments in breaking the cycle of poverty. And that's providing something that the vast majority of parents don't even have. And that's a checking and a savings account in that young child's name where they can build up not only assets, but build that mindset in terms of creating that college-going culture. Well, to talk about this college savings idea, we have with us Mia Bonta, CEO of Oakland Promise, which promotes college going and has set up college savings accounts for thousands of students in Oakland. She's also on the school board in Alameda and incidentally is also running for the assembly seat vacated by her husband, Rob Bonta, recently appointed attorney general in California by Governor Newsom. Joining Mia Bonta is Amanda Feinstein, who runs Oakland Promise's Brilliant Baby program, which she'll tell us about. And she's been intimately involved with the scholarship program since it began. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Let's jump in, Mia Bonta. What was your initial reaction to Governor Newsom's $2 billion program to expand these scholarships to 3.7 million kids in the state? At Oakland Promise, with our vision to ensure that we have a thriving Oakland community without barriers to educational opportunity, this idea of promoting pre-kindergarten for all four-year-olds and that Governor Newsom is putting into place a plan to fund college savings accounts for low-income students at scale, it's transformative, it's game-changing, and we are very, very excited about the opportunity that this presents for, for our children. Well, I think most Californians are probably unaware of these programs and how they work. Other cities have been doing it. San Francisco, L.A. has also has some programs. You have two programs. One is the Brilliant Baby Program for kids beginning at birth and then for kids in kindergarten. So, Amanda Feinstein, why don't you just tell us, how does the Brilliant Baby Program work? There are about 12 programs around the state just for context, at the local level that are offering child savings accounts for kids and embedded in the Oakland Promise or two, as you've indicated. Brilliant Baby is our program that begins at birth, and we are making a specific focus on reaching families who are Medi-Cal eligible with a new child, a newborn, before their first birthday to help parents open a college savings account seeded by the Oakland Promise with $500. And the child is the beneficiary of that account. It's linked to them through their social security number. It's invested over time in a 529 and will grow probably to about $1,500 given the sort of typical growth in the market by the time they go to college. And how many kids have gotten that so far? We are approaching our 900th. Okay, and I have to ask you, where does the money come from for that? 
The funds have come through philanthropy with a significant starting investment from Mark and Lynn Benioff four years ago, and then a range of foundations in the Bay Area and individual donors that have supported this program and and all of Oakland Promise's programs. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, Mia Bonte, then what about the other piece of this, the scholarships for kindergartners? We also do at Oakland Promise, along with the city of Oakland, have made a promise to provide $100 college savings for kindergartners in Oakland. We have 25,000 kindergartners that we've made that promise to and intend to keep. And that has been funded by a joint effort from the Oakland City Council and the Oakland mayor in making sure to prioritize college savings accounts and early college scholarships in their budgets every year uh, since 2016 for for our students in Oakland. So these programs have been around a while. What's the research show why this investment of $2 billion in state money is a, is a wise investment? The value of, of a college savings account strategy is several. For one, particularly if we can support low-income families with a meaningful amount of money, it, it does in fact help families pay for college-related expenses. But frankly, even the bigger issue is to create a concrete growing asset resource that is a reminder to parents and to kids that college is within their reach, that college is something that families in the community are planning for. And so children begin to really embrace a a personal expectation and a perception of themselves as someone who goes to college. And there is research that points to the impact of having such a perception on beginning college and persisting through college. But is it your expectation that families would contribute additional funds to these accounts? We know that families actually do invest in themselves and invest in their children. So part of what we're doing is just trying to provide the basic tools and information and resources for them to be able to do that. A lot of the other kind of work that we do at Oakland Promise, which focuses on building that college-going mindset, helping students navigate through their high school experience and then participate in completing the FAFSA or the DREAM Act application for additional financial aid resources, college matching, college advising. They're all components of this critical picture along the way that we need to paint for families and to have them engage in so that they know that they get this college savings account in the beginning of their child's educational trajectory and that that trajectory ends in their completion of college. Are there matching opportunities along the way? If you participate in certain programs, or if you do certain things, we'll match part of your money and you can build your nest egg that way too? Within the Oakland Promises program, we've structured Match as a way of encouraging families to open their own college accounts for their kids. So if a family opens a college savings account, the Oakland Promise will contribute $50 to that account. And if the family saves six times in the first year, we'll put another $50 in that account. That's just one example. There are programs throughout the state and, frankly, the country that have experimented with other ways to essentially build on and encourage families to save. And we're actually excited as we move into the future to think about other ways to encourage families when they can to contribute to their own child's uh, educational fund. Before we let you go, I just wanted to get a sense of how parents respond to this. I imagine some parents are just amazed that the school district is doing this. I think parents really appreciate recognizing that they are valued, that their children are valued, and that they have partners 
in nonprofits in the city, in the school district, in helping to ensure that their child has the ability to go on to hold the vision that they have for their child. Every parent wants their child to be successful. Every parent wants to be able to have agency in supporting that success. And we're super thankful that we get to be partners with those parents in ensuring that their kids have those opportunities that they so deserve, uh, particularly in this time, especially for Oakland. Well, if Governor Newsom gets his way, millions more students, uh, young kids around California will have a similar opportunity. Thanks for joining us today, Mia Bonta and Amanda Feinstein from Oakland Promise. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Coming up, a conversation with Chris Edley. Chris Edley is the former dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, and he has just been named interim dean of the Graduate School of Education at Berkeley. Chris is a co-founder of the Opportunity Institute. Amongst these many accomplishments, he was a special assistant to President Clinton in the 1990s, which is when I first met him, and he's been an advocate for equity in education for decades. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, Lewis, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, let me ask you, and and, and to put it kind of delicately, uh, a deanship of any academic institution is not for the faint of heart. Why did you decide to take on this assignment at at this moment in time? As you mentioned, education issues, uh, particularly equity issues in education, have been a passion of mine for decades. And once I stepped down as dean of the law school, I've had a few years to really focus on those matters intensely. The thing that drives me about it is I see educational excellence and equity as key determinants of social justice, of civil rights, as well as key drivers of prosperity uh, for the society as a whole. And right now, we have a special moment in which the country and its leadership are focused on issues of inequality, of racial justice, as well as economic growth and equity. So education really must be at the center of the agenda, and it's a, it's a wonderful time to be a part of a school of education at a world-leading public research university. You mentioned education governor. I haven't heard Governor Newsom being described as that or him describing himself as that, but certainly education has been at the center of his policy agenda. And just this week has announced some extraordinary initiatives, I mean, multi-billion dollar initiatives that do seem to have the potential to be a game changer, as one of our guests on the podcast just mentioned. You know, one of the programs is initiating is a real focus on mental health, multi-billion dollar mental health program, more counselors, more support, uh, lower class sizes, but really looking at the social emotional side of the education enterprise. You think that's the right direction to be going in? Well, first, let me say with respect to the governor's proposals, generally, uh, the sentiment is obviously spectacular. I am a little more skeptical or less enthusiastic in the sense that he's 
hampered by two ideological obstacles. One is that even though we're talking about public education, there's a reluctance for government to have too big a role. There's still some hangover from the Reagan era where big government is the problem. Uh, but the second is, frankly, the, what I think of as the romantic commitment to localism. You know, education problems are really hard. A lot of them are harder than rocket science. And so assuming that all the smart ideas uh, are going to be dreamed up across a thousand school districts is, I think, the technical term, uh, nuts. So the state really has to be much more of a partner and much less standoffish. So that's my general concern about what Sacramento does. On early childhood, on early learning, and on social-emotional learning, and on mental health issues, the direction is absolutely right. And it will require this additional money. It shouldn't be for the short term, though, in reaction to COVID. It should be baked into permanent budgets because we need to create not just responses to the acute problems generated by the pandemic, but we need to build systems that understand, recognize, put to work recent developments in brain science, in child development, that tell us about the ways in which adversity, uh, chronic stress, can raise difficulties for learning and for teaching. We know that these effects are taking place. We know, uh, I believe, that having a great teacher isn't enough for children who faced adversity. So mental health services, attention to social-emotional learning, all of this is key to both the excellence and the equity agendas, and we need to build systems that will be with us helping for the long term. Chris, it's been a lot of adversity and trauma over the past year during the pandemic. That's right. And so the first thing you hear now is we need to avoid going back to the new normal. How does that apply to a graduate school of education? What is, do you think about avoiding going back to the new normal? There are other challenges or other ways of thinking about the way you do things? Look, absolutely. I've been able to talk with several superintendents. Everyone I've spoken to is committed to building back better, to reimagining where we can. People are not interested in merely filling the potholes. They're thinking about building new roads. They're thinking about different transportation systems altogether. This is a moment for ambition. The problem, on the other hand, is that they have so many challenges that they're trying to face simultaneously that making plans, making concrete plans to do more than fill potholes is extremely difficult to do. They have to move quickly. They have to be a little bit risk-averse because they don't want the money to be wasted. Uh, they don't want people screaming, gotcha, a year from now when it turns out that money's been wasted. And they've got to be cognizant of the fact that most of this is short-term money when what they really want is longer-term money so that they can uh, respond with the right kind of personnel and uh, the right kind of investments. So it's very hard for school superintendents and others to follow through on their aspirations to build back better, build back different, reimagine. What I'm hoping they will do is that every school leader will take, let's say, three important things that they've learned during the pandemic response 
about how to do better and try to keep those in place as we move forward. While you deal with all the other crises uh, of the moment, just focus on three where there'll be intentionality about continuing, maintaining that innovation and, and that success. What's the interface then with you and the graduate schools? Graduate schools of education first have to be providers of intellectual capital. What have been the success stories of innovation under duress, if you will, innovation in crisis? What are the success stories where the evidence shows us the change should be sustainable and built upon and conveying that to practitioners in a systematic way? That's number one. Number two, I think, is is we have to really step up in teacher preparation and professional development so that teachers and principals are more attuned to the need of innovating in these various directions, whether it's using technology, uh, whether it's using paraprofessionals. And finally, uh, I, I think that a great school of education, especially at a public research institution has to play in the realm of public policy. We have to be a source of ideas and not be ashamed of saying, here's what you should be looking at, not that political poll over there or that focus group over here. Here's news you can use with confidence. Well, this is going to be a crucial couple of years for education in California and the nation and the world, actually. And I know there's people in the School of Education who are working internationally. So I would love to have you back once you're on the job and see how your ideas are tempered by the realities of heading up the school. We've been talking with Chris Edley, who's just been named the Interim Dean of the Graduate School of Education at UC Berkeley. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Lewis and John. Anytime. Next week, we'll be back with another Dean of Education, USC Rossier School of Education Dean, Professor Pedro Nogueira, to talk about the importance of civic education and how to handle controversial issues in the classroom. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and its source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. 